0: Welcome to the Institute of World Politics podcast. IWP is a graduate school of national security and international affairs. To learn more, please visit www.iwp.edu.
1: Thank you for attending this lecture at the Institute of World Politics. For those of you who are new, IWP is a graduate school of national security and international affairs. We have five master's degree programs, 18 certificates of study, and a new doctoral program. If you're interested in learning more about us, please feel free to speak to one of our staff at the conclusion of this event. Chris Miller is an assistant professor of international history at the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy. He is also Eurasia Research Director at the Foreign Policy Research Institute. He's the author of Putinomics, Power and Money in the Resurgent Russia and the Struggle to Save the Soviet Economy. He received his PhD from Yale University and his AB from Harvard University. Please join me in welcoming our speaker.
0: Thank you very much for the introduction. It's a, a fun time to talk about Russia, not only because Obviously, Washington, D.C. and the United States as a whole is obsessed with Russia for a variety of reasons. But also for those of you who follow Russian politics itself, it's a big week in Russia. We have the Russian presidential election coming up in just a couple of days where Vladimir Putin will be reelected to a fourth term as president, giving him probably six more years, if not longer after that, at the helm of Russian politics. And one of the questions that it poses, and it's a question I'd like to pose to you today and suggest a couple of potential answers is, How has he managed to do it? How is it that Putin has managed to retain power over nearly two decades despite a wide array of challenges to his rule, both foreign and domestic, and not least, economic shocks? And what I'd like to do today is discuss some of the economic shocks that Putin has faced over the course of the last 20 years uh, to explain the strategies he's employed to deal with these economic shocks, and to suggest, I think, that his economic strategy explains much of why he's been able to retain power at home and to deploy it to some effect abroad, despite an economic environment that in recent years has been far from favorable. So that is my task day and the question I'll pose over the next half an hour is how, despite this economic environment that has been very unfavorable for Russia, nonetheless, Putin has been able uh, to not only continue ruling Russia, but also uh, playing an ever larger role in European and then uh, most recently, Middle Eastern politics. So how has this happened? How has he done it? Uh, This is based off my new book, Putinomics, How Putin Survived Sanctions, the oil price crash is the topic uh, for today. And what I'd like to do is set up a dilemma for you, which I think is more of a puzzle than we often think, and then to try to pose some answers to uh, to that dilemma. So first off, a couple of facts to orient our discussion that I think won't be a surprise to anyone, but it's worth noting that just four years ago, many people thought that Russia was on the brink of an economic and indeed a political crisis. So in January 2014, oil prices were above $100 a barrel. By the end of that year, they were at half that price, and they've been trading in the roughly $50 a barrel range, plus or minus a bit, for the past three years. So Russia's major export oil it trades at half the price it used to and many of russia's gas contracts remain linked to the oil price so gas exports as well uh, have fallen very sharply in price and so we an economy as dependent on uh, commodity exports as is russia this is a very serious shock at the same time just as oil prices were crashing in 2014 the united states and the european union were leaving economic sanctions on russia over first the annexation of crimea and then the more significant Round of sanctions were levied on Russia after its efforts to foment rebellion uh, in the Donbas, the southeastern region of Ukraine. So the EU and the US worked together to impose sanctions on the Russian financial sector and also the energy sector, which imposed serious costs on both parts of the Russian economy. And in response, Russia levied on the West a series of prohibitions on agricultural inputs, uh, imports, which prohibited Russians from buying fruits from Poland or cheeses from France and had a significant effect in increasing food prices in 2015 and 2016, thereby reducing Russians' household income. So both Western sanctions on Russia and Russia's sanctions on the West had a pretty significant effect uh, in reducing Russian well-being. And that happened at the exact same time that the oil price was crashing. At the same time, this occurs. Both of these shocks occur amidst the business climate in Russia that has been and remains highly unfavorable. Uh, the most recent uh, high-profile example of this is Vladimir Yevtushenko, who's a well-known Russian oligarch who, after a largely fabricated uh, judicial case against him, was uh, lost assets equivalent to at 1.5 billion dollars. He was uh, he got. In a dispute with Igor Sechin, who is, by some accounts, the second most powerful person in Russia, the CEO of Rosneft, who was able to pull various judicial strings uh, in Russia to create a fabricated court case uh, and then steal assets from Mr. Yevtushchenkov. And the effect of this case and many, many others like it have been to dissuade business people in Russia from investing. So the wealthiest Russians keep much of their money abroad because they deem it safer, to save money abroad, and also to invest abroad. So as Russia has faced these two short-term shocks of oil price crashes and sanctions, it faces this longer issue of its business climate, which remains uh, mediocre at best. It's far from attractive for either Russians or foreigners to invest there. Now, as the oil price crashed in 2014, the ruble crashed along with it, falling from around 30 to the dollar, where it had been for uh, most of the years before uh, 2014, down to half that level by the end of the year, and it's been fluctuating around 50 or 60 to the dollar ever since. And the effect of this was to make it more difficult for Russians to buy imported goods because those imported goods were far more expensive, twice as expensive in ruble terms by the end of 2015 than they had been at the start of 2014. So this was, a again, a major hit to Russian household incomes. And that uh, the ruble has stabilized, but it has certainly not appreciated to where it was in 2014. And as a result of these shocks, Russian GDP in 2015 and into 2016 Uh, was declining. The Russian economy shrank in 2015 and was basically stagnant in 2016, only in 2017 as it returned finally to economic growth, although it's worth noting that the Russian growth rate at around 2% uh, a year in 2017 is far from rapid. For an economy as poor as Russia's, Russia remains far poorer than most uh, developed economies in Europe or the United States, it ought to be growing far more rapidly than it is now. So it's a success story of a sort that Growth is back, but it's growth that is far less impressive than Russia ought to be able to accomplish. And most uh, economists who study Russia believe that barring a significant increase in oil prices, Russian growth is unlikely to exceed around 2% for the foreseeable future. So we've got Russia significantly underperforming other comparable countries. If you look at other countries in Eastern Europe, for example, from Poland to Romania, their economies are growing far more rapidly than Russia. So this is a success story, but only to a certain extent in terms of the return of economic growth. Now, although the economy is growing again, household incomes uh, are actually still suffering. So this is a chart of real wages, inflation-adjusted wages. 100 uh, implies no growth compared to the same period of the previous year. Any number below 100 implies that percentage decline. Above 100 uh, implies an increase. And as you can see, real wages declined remarkably uh, in 2015 in particular, and they're only now beginning to uh, grow again after the crisis. So in 2015, real wages were declining by nearly 10% a year. By comparison, that's far more significant uh, by almost an order of magnitude than the decline of U.S. real wages after the 2008 financial crisis. This is a very serious uh, hit to the average Russian's household income far more significant in percentage terms than Americans suffered in 2008, or indeed almost any country in Europe. So the magnitude is really quite striking. But despite this, we see uh, Putin as in control of the political system as ever before. And this is visible not only in the polling data, about his approval ratings, which remain basically unchanged. He's hovering somewhere around 70 or 80%, depending on how you calculate and how much you adjust for uh, potential inaccuracy in the polling data. And also at the elite level, in Russian elite politics, there's no evidence that Putin's ability to balance the different elite groups within the Kremlin is degraded at all compared to five years ago or 10 years ago. It's obviously much more opaque to understand elite politics, but there's no real evidence that he's having a harder time balancing uh, despite the economic crisis than he was before the economic crisis. So on the one hand, you have a very adverse economic situation. On the other hand, you have a politician who manages to have emerged from the crisis apparently unscathed that there isn't much evidence that the economic crisis has challenged Putin uh, politically. Maybe it will in the future, but it certainly hasn't yet. And so he's going to coast to re-election uh, in just several days with probably 70% of the vote share, maybe higher. Obviously, it's an election without real opposition candidates, so it's only reflective of Crohn's the, the ability to manage the electoral process. But nonetheless, I think uh, their ability to manage that suggests that, indeed, he is in control of the political system. The economic crisis hasn't yet knocked him off track. So the question for us as analysts trying to understand Russian politics is, How was this possible? Because if I'd asked you or you'd asked me to imagine a country five years ago and then said the country was going to experience a terrible economic crisis where the average person's wage would decline by 10% in a single year, you or I would have both said, I suspect in that country the leadership will get less popular. And indeed, the leader himself might be forced out of office. But in Russia, that hasn't happened. And so our task is to explain, well, why is that? What makes the Russian context unique? And what I'd like to propose to you is that There are a number of reasons why. One is Putin's control of the media, which lets him shape uh, the political debate in the system. Two is his ability to lock up opposition candidates, which he's used to great effect. But an important aspect in understanding Putin's political longevity is his economic policy. And in my study of uh, Putin's economic policy, it strikes me that there are three pillars of Putinomics which are crucial to understanding how Putin has wielded power within Russia and the uh, success that he's had in doing so. So the first pillar of Putinomics is sound macroeconomic management. What I mean by that is that the Russian government has very effectively ensured that Russia, despite oil price crashes, despite the vagaries of international commodity markets, has done everything in its power and has very successfully been able to manage Russian macroeconomics to retain stability. And so, for example, if you were to read the annual IMF reports on Russian economic management, the IMF would say, in macroeconomic policy terms, the Russian government does almost everything right. It's doing a very good job in macroeconomic management. And it seems to me that's crucial to understanding part of Putin's success. A second pillar of Putinomics is to strategically use social services to win the support. Of influential groups. And the best example of this is pensions. Uh, There's an election coming up, so Russian pensions were just increased. They increased pensions before every election as a means of winning votes. But it's actually not only around elections, Putin has strategically used pensions to keep older voters on board with his presidency, and older voters, uh, we know, are a large voting group. In Russia and so it's very important to keep them happy and indeed the Russian government has been very successful at doing that. So using pensions strategically to retain popular support. And third, to realize that despite, uh, despite our common uh, discussion of the similarities between Russia today and the Soviet Union of 25 years ago, and of course there are similarities in domestic politics and foreign policy, it's also crucial to realize that in economic terms there's one big difference, which is that unlike in the Soviet Union, Despite all of the mistakes that the Russian government makes, they've gotten one thing right, which is to keep a private sector that is able to uh, operate more or less efficiently with a fair amount of corruption, of course, but not a lot more corruption than you get in other countries in the region or other emerging markets. So there is a private sector. It faces some challenges, but broadly speaking, it's able to work. And so in the industries that are not dominated by the governments, the energy industry is a separate issue. but. Industries like supermarkets or tourism, industries that have not been uh, gotten the attraction of of the Kremlin's political management, the private sector functions reasonably well, and it's able to manage uh, its operations and improve productivity over time. And that's crucial to differentiating what Russia is doing correctly today that the Soviet Union did not do correctly in 1991 when it collapsed. It's absolutely important for understanding the differences. So let me zoom in now and focus on the question of macroeconomic management, which is, I think, the most important uh, policy decision that Putin and the Russian elite overall have made, which has sustained their popularity over time. So what's important to realize, I think, is that the Russian government has learned over time and improved its macroeconomic management over time. And the the key change here is between the response to the 2008 crisis and the response to the 2014 crisis. In both years, oil prices collapsed, but the Russian government responded differently. And it's worth studying that difference. Here's a, chart of, of, a chart of oil and gas as a share of overall government revenue. It'll come as no surprise to anyone that Russia, as one of the world's largest oil exporters, uh, relies very heavily for taxing oil exports for its government revenue. Around half of government revenue comes from the oil and gas industry. But what the Russians did to their credit in the 2000s, when oil prices were high, is they saved a lot of their their oil export revenue. So rather than spending it all on immediate political priorities, and of course there were many lobby groups from various parts of the Russian political system that were demanding spending on various issues, the Russian government saved lots and lots of money (coughs) in the 2000s, up to nearly $700 billion were saved before the 2008 crash. And the savings meant that when oil prices did decline, and of course oil prices are something that the Russian government does not control, the Russians had the resources with which to respond. So you see a very sharp decline in Russian foreign exchange reserves in 2008 and 2009. That was the first oil price crash that they dealt with. And then more recently in 2014 and 2015, you also have a less sharp, but nonetheless significant decline in foreign exchange reserves. So saving money when times were good to spend it when times are bad was a very sensible policy and it helped Putin ensure a more stable macroeconomic situation. Now, the Russian government can't control the fact that when oil prices decline, Russian GDP declines, and when oil prices rise, Russian GDP rises. That's just a reality of being an oil exporter. The same is true of Saudi Arabia, the same is true of Azerbaijan, the same is true of Kuwait. If you've got a lot of oil, you're going to be uh, chained to oil price cycles. That's a reality that they have to deal with. But what they've done is they've learned over time that A, you need to save money when oil prices are high, and B, you need to have an adequate response when oil prices fall. And in 2008, what the Russian government realized is that they risked a real disaster because of their economic response. They got lucky to a certain extent. And what they did when oil prices crashed in 2008 is that they spent their foreign exchange reserves trying to defend the value of the ruble. So the ruble was at an elevated level, but rather than letting the ruble fall, they spent foreign exchange reserves trying to prop up the ruble. And as you can see, as a result, foreign exchange reserves, that's the blue bars, fell very, very sharply in just a couple of months in 2008 as the government tried to keep the ruble stable. And the rubles fell a little bit, but stayed more or less stable during that period. And this was a strategy that was beneficial to the Russian population because they didn't suffer the effects of devaluation, but it risked the real crisis because if the Russian government were to have run out of reserves, if oil prices weren't to have increased in 2009, essentially bailing out the Russian government, they could have reached a point where they would have run out of funds and had to do a shock devaluation of the ruble and, and, and put themselves in a similar position as the disastrous crisis of 1998. And so what the Russian government learned from the 2008 crisis was that when an oil price decline comes, the better macroeconomic policy response is to let the ruble fall. And that's exactly what they did in 2014 and into 2015. The ruble immediately crashed, and it crashed not because the Russian government wasn't in control, but because the Russian central bank had, before the crisis, made clear that their policy in case of an oil price decline would be to let the ruble float, to let the ruble go down. And to shift the burden of adjustment, take it away from the Russian government, and put the burden of adjustment on the Russian population. And I'll explain what I mean in that. So here you have a chart of the ruble falling very sharply in late 2014, and a much less sharp decline in foreign exchange reserves because the Russian government had to spend less money propping up the ruble because the ruble was allowed to decline. So I said that this decision shifted the cost of adjustment away from the government and towards the population, and I'll explain what I mean by that. This is a chart of the price of oil in dollars and also in rubles. The dark blue line at the bottom is the uh, dollar price of the barrel of oil, and when we're used to talking about oil prices, we quote the price in dollars. The light blue line on the top is the ruble price of a barrel of oil. And now in most situations, the ruble price of a barrel of oil doesn't really matter. It's not something that most people think about. But From the Russian government's perspective, the ruble price of oil is absolutely crucial because the Russian government, all of its expenses are in rubles. Salaries of state employees, defense spending is in rubles, pensions are in rubles. Everything the Russian government spends money on is in rubles. Its, it's income and, it's, uh, and it's, it's, its expenses are all in rubles. So from the Russian government's perspective, the key question is not how many dollars did they get per barrel of oil, but how many rubles did they get per barrel of oil. And by letting the price of rubles crash against the dollar, they got more dollars per barrel of oil than they otherwise would have. So the ruble price of oil, the light blue line, uh, fluctuates much less than the dollar price of the barrel of oil. The dollar price falls to half its level, but the ruble price is almost unchanged by the end, uh, by by mid-2016 compared to the 2014 value which means that the Russian government is getting as many rubles in the door as it was beforehand. So its budget was almost balanced in 2015 and 2016, despite the crash in the oil price. But the effect of this was to drive down the dollar value of rubles, That's what the the devaluation means. And so if you were a pensioner getting the same number of rubles from the Russian government a month, or if you were a state employee getting the same salary of rubles, your rubles were worth far less because the ruble had declined against the dollar. And so any imported good that you wanted to buy, you wanted to buy food and much of Russia's food is imported, or you wanted to buy a car, many Russian cars are imported, imported, the ruble price of that car has doubled because the ruble has fallen by half against the dollar. You need twice as many rubles... To buy that car. And so Russians bore the burden, not the government, but average Russians bore the burden of the adjustment because they had to pay a lot more for imported goods. And Russians import lots of goods because they don't produce much besides oil and gas. So most things that Russians buy are in fact imported. And so in 2015 and 2016 you had very big price increases in imported goods as a result of this process. Now normally in a democratic country if the currency collapses and prices of imported goods shoot up, uh, the population would be very unhappy and might even kick the government out of office. But the Kremlin reasoned correctly, as it turned out, that the populace wouldn't complain, that the populace would tolerate a decline in living standards due to a decline in the ruble, that there would be no significant political costs. And indeed, that assessment by the Kremlin has been borne out. It's true that Putin hasn't sustained any sort of obvious political cost by letting the ruble collapse. It's true GDP declined, as we discussed before a very sharp decline in 2015 and stagnation in 2016 before returning to growth last year. But nonetheless, Putin has been able to uh, push the burden of adjustment on the population without suffering any political cost. So stabilizing the macroeconomy was a successful strategy in his view because it was possible to stabilize it on the backs of household incomes. He could push the cost of adjustment on households without suffering any consequences. So that's the first pillar of Putinomics, is prioritize macroeconomic stability at all costs. And it's easier to do in Putin's system because he's able to impose costs on the population in a way that a democratic leader is not able to. But the second pillar of Putinomics, as I mentioned before, is strategically using social support to buy off politically influential groups. And the best example of this, as I mentioned, is pensions. Here you have real growth, so inflation-adjusted growth in pensions. in in each year. And as you can see, before Putin took power in the year 2000, uh, pensions had declined for much of the 1990s, and some of the declines were extraordinarily sharp. So in 1999, in inflation-adjusted terms, pensions declined by 40%. Now if you consider how uh, important Social Security is as an issue in American politics, pensions in Russia are an order of magnitude more important. Every Russian above 60, uh, 55 for women or 60 for men gets a pension. And for most Russians of retirement age, their pension represents the majority, if not all, of their income. So there's very limited retirement savings on the individual level. Almost all pensioners are mostly, if not wholly, dependent on the value of their pensions for their retirement income, which means that the, all the old people of Russia desperately focus on this one issue and so in the 1990s when pensions were declining it was a huge political issue and when putin was able to turn that around in the early 2000s with pension growth rates of uh 10 20 even 30 percent a year this represented a remarkable tool for showing up his support among pensioners and of course this was deliberate people knew that pensioners would respond positively to rapid pension increases and the kremlin focused on this issue above all <clears throat> now you can also see that since uh, since the 2008 crisis, and especially since 2011, 2012, when Putin returned to the presidency, pension growth has slowed in part because there's been less money. The economic situation has been less positive. But nonetheless, uh, with the election coming up this month, uh, pensions were raised uh, recently, again, to provide uh, Putin an extra boost going into the elections. Again, strategizing that keeping pensioners happy will bring them out to vote and make sure they don't protest. Now, you might ask, well, why pensioners and not some other social group? Why not students who are unhappy about low education spending or why not people who are suffering from an underfunded healthcare system. But it turns out empirically that we know that pensioners protest in Russia and we know that most other groups are much less likely to protest about social issues. And in fact, one of the biggest protests in Putin's Russia came with uh, a pension law change in the mid 2000s, which brought pensioners across Russia out onto the streets and immediately forced policy changes, both in the provincial and on the central level. So there's an immediate response to this mass movement of pensioners, which was far more politically significant than many of the the protests that we see against Putin or against corruption uh, in Russia. So the political system is very responsive to pensioners because they know that pensioners will in fact protest. And we have evidence of this in the past. So supporting pensioners has been a crucial uh, pillar of Putin's economic strategy. And it's worth noting that it's not that Putin has been, or the Kremlin in general, has been funding social programs across the board. Quite the contrary. Russia's health spending as a share of GDP is relatively low, lower than Slovenia, Czechoslovakia, Hungary, Turkey. Uh, it's slightly higher than Turkey, although I don't know. It's a country that Russians would want to compare themselves with on the healthcare front. And on education, too, it's very clear that Russia has been underfunding education. And in recent years, uh, by most metrics, both health and education spending have been declining in inflation-adjusted terms. So there's no desire to prioritize these issues because the government knows that people won't protest about health or education, but they will protest about pensions. That's a very important (coughs) political lesson for them as they try to strategically use government policy to win support from various groups. So these are the strategies that Putin has used to uh, secure his political support over the past two decades. What I'd like to Posed to you is a dilemma that is posed to the Kremlin right now is that it anticipates Putin's next six-year term. And the question is, what to do next? Does the current strategy, which has worked quite well over the past two decades, does it have what it takes to keep Putin uh, stable through his next six-year term? Or is it better to bet on a new policy, which might be more capable of winning economic growth, but also might upset the delicate political deba- political balance that has thus far worked well for Putin? So there are two basic strategies uh, that are being debated in the Kremlin right now and in the Russian political system writ large. The first is affiliated with this man, Alexei Kudrin, former finance minister and associate of Putin, uh, since his time in St. Petersburg politics in the early 1990s. Kudrin has been a big advocate of cutting waste at state-owned enterprises, such as Gazprom or Rosneft, of liberalizing the economy, of privatization, and also of improving relations with the West in order to reduce economic sanctions and cut military spending. The challenge that Kudrin's program faces, however, is that there are many very influential Russians who have done quite well from the inefficiencies and corruption in the current system. So, for example, uh, multiple of Putin's judo buddies are now billionaires, uh, not because of any any business skill, but because they have contacts uh, with the president. And so changes that would reduce corruption would directly uh, affect their business model. So, too, many of the very powerful people who run state-owned companies. Running a state-owned company is a lucrative thing to do in Russia because it allows you to dispense patronage and corruption dollars uh, very effectively. And so if you were to reduce corruption at state-owned companies, the people who run those companies, who are immensely powerful, would themselves personally suffer from that. So there are very powerful political constituencies in Russia that are opposed to the types of reforms that are probably necessary to boost growth, which is why the policies that Kudrin proposes of making the government more efficient, of reducing corruption, of privatizing businesses are probably unlikely to be adopted in any sort of significant fashion, just because the most powerful Russians would personally lose out because of his policies. And instead, the more likely, in my view, prognosis is that Russia will make some synthetic changes, some cosmetic changes, but in reality, not do much in terms of changing. Because the lesson that Putin has drawn is that economic growth is actually not the most important thing for its popularity. As we saw in the first chart with Putin's approval rating, his approval rating has been constant regardless of the economy. As long as he provides a modicum of stability, as long as he's able to pay pensions on time, as long as he's still able to control the domestic political system, he appears, at least thus far, to have had no obvious challenge to his rule. And so the least risky option in the Kremlin's view is to change nothing and hope that the next six years will turn out like the previous six years has. And so the questions for analysts of Russian politics, and this is a question that analysts in the Kremlin are asking right now as well, is, is this a realistic assumption that the policies that worked in the last six years will work over the next six years? Or will stagnation eventually change how Russians view the Kremlin and view Putin personally? Will a long period of growth and living standards make Russians begin to blame Putin personally rather than just be dissatisfied in general with the political system. That's an open question. We're going to find the answer to that. We're going to discover the answer to that over the next several years. But it is, I think, the central question to Russian political economy. Because if, in fact, Russians will not begin to blame Putin personally, and if, in fact, stagnation does not upset Russian elite politics, then there's no reason for the government to change anything. The rational choice, if so, would be to tolerate stagnation, because stagnation doesn't affect the political system, and the Kremlin likes the current political balance. Another way of phrasing the question is at the election and over the course of Putin's next term, do most Russians associate Putinomics with this chart, which is charting per capita GDP from 1999, uh, right when Putin took power up to 2013, showing an extraordinary growth in Russia's economy, expanding by four times uh, the 1999 level. That's a story of success. Or will Russians begin to associate Putinomics with this chart? This is real incomes over the past decade, showing a couple years of growth, but also a couple years of sharp falls and multiple years of stagnation. So will Russians begin to shift their view of what Putinomics has entailed from one of growth plus stability to one of stability that's becoming a sort of stagnation that's affecting them negatively in a direct way? And so that, I think, is the crucial question we need to ask as we look at Russia's political system and its economy over the next six years, and that's the question that Putin himself, I think, is wrestling with as he uh, begins to choose the government that will... Uh, he'll, he'll pick a new prime minister, potentially, or he'll have the choice of reappointing Dmitry Medvedev after the election, and he'll have the choice of shuffling his cabinet if he so desires, and this debate will very much shape the government he chooses over the next six years. And so if you want to think about how Russian politics develops after the election, the important part is not, of course, the counting of ballots on election day. We know how that's gonna go. The important question is, how do you assess this debate? Because it's this debate, I think, that will define not only Putinomics, but also Putin's political system for the next six years.